This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Thank you so much. All right, I, I got to ask you first. So my 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 agent in radio is here, and he's way more than my agent at this point, and he is a a resident of Florida, and he hasn't shut up about your CNBC interview the other day, and the just your economic message for the country. When you and I have talked on radio, I, I do have to tell you, I, I've laughed. Afterwards, each time when I ask you about the economy in Florida, one of the things you've mentioned is cutting tolls, uh, lowering rates. My relatives who live there love it, but I'm like, the president can't cut tolls in Iowa. Suddenly, you, we've got this economic vision from you about the country that I think is just connecting because it's it's free market, but it's also recognizing that we have a lot of big businesses in the country now that the government spends more time surrounding them with lobbyists and regulators to protect them from the little guy ever daring to challenge them. So it's been refreshing to hear this economic vision that doesn't abandon conservative principles of the free market, but recognize we really don't have one right now. Yeah, well, first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you all for coming, and it's great to be back in Georgia. I will say, as somebody who was born and raised in Florida, uh, the Florida-Georgia game was a little easier lift for us back in the day than it is now. <laughs> and you Georgians know what I mean. So congratulations on all the success. I kind of this kind and, and I talk about all the stuff in Florida, and I'll talk about the economy nationally and in Florida. And I can point to so many things that we've done better on almost everything policy-wise. I can point out or many things. Um, college football is not. Necessarily necessarily been one of them. So we're trying to turn the corner. And I realized this my first year as governor, I asked my staff to give me letters of congratulations for all Florida's high school blue chip football recruits, because we've got great high school football in Florida. And I'm signing these letters. And it's like, dear Michael, congratulations on going to the University of Georgia. Congratulations on going to Alabama. And I'm like, why am I congratulating them for leaving our state that didn't yet uh, didn't used to be what it was. So anyways, Florida, Georgia game, um, you know, let's just say I, I'm going to be, you know, cheering as the governor, but I am not going to be putting any money on the Gators uh, this year. So, you know, part of the thing I think with, with the economy is one, uh, a lot of the problems we have are, are still legacies of the COVID policies that this country did that did not work. And I think we just have to be honest about that. Because we cannot go down this road again when you stop the economy, when you pay people not to work, uh, when you keep kids out of school, all of that has an effect when you print trillions and trillions of dollars, you know, that has a major, major impact. People were predicting that we would have the inflation that we've seen. And when the media says it's slowing, 
understand that's still adding on everything that's happened. And so you now have a situation where uh, middle class families working hard, playing by the rules, getting the most out of their God given ability uh, are struggling to be able to, to raise families, to afford a house. Uh, to afford to purchase a new car. And if our country can't do well for those people who are doing everything right, we are just not going to be successful as a country. And so a lot of this has been government driven. I look at the mortgage, uh, the mortgage rates were, were now over seven, heading towards, towards eight percent. If you take the, the median home in this country, five years ago and compare what that mortgage uh, payment monthly would be to the median home today and the mortgage payment, these interest rates, it's over twice as much on a monthly basis. So how is that sustainable uh, for, for, for having a strong middle class? And so we have to recognize government's role in putting us into this mess. Uh, the amount of money that the Congress has spent has been totally outrageous over the last four or five years. Uh, it has not been effective, and it's caused a lot of problems. Uh, the way government, particularly under Biden, operates, regulations, bureaucracy, that benefits big corporations, and it hurts small businesses, individual entrepreneurs, medium-sized businesses. It gives them a competitive advantage. Our country is going to succeed or not based on whether we can have small businesses thrive and individual entrepreneurs do well. So we're going to take uh, that. I've already said on day one, all of Biden's executive orders and regulations are going in the trash can January 20th, 2025. That's going to be very, very positive. We also have an administration that's making a very conscious decision to adopt policies, left-wing policies, Green New Deal policies about energy, which are very destructive for the standard of living for the average American. And people are already seeing it now, but basically their message is uh, that you have to uh, just learn to deal uh, with a lower standard of living because they have all these things they need to do you know, to fight global warming and all that. Now that doesn't involve John Kerry giving up his private jet, mind you, but they want you to be able to have to pay pay the piper on that. So what we're going to do is we're going to unleash all of our domestic energy production here in the United States, and we're going to be energy independent again. That's going to... That's going to be a big relief to consumers. It's going to be a big relief to businesses. It's going to help our industrial base. I mean, permitting these pipelines is a no-brainer. It's adding industry. It's, it's important. But it will be great for our national security. One of the things Biden did when he came in and went after our domestic energy, well, who does that help? It helps Russia. It helps Iran. It helps Venezuela. And it helps China. They want to force us into electric vehicles uh, the stuff that goes into that is produced, much of that is produced in China, and so it gives them a competitive advantage. We're energy independent. We'll be the number one energy power in the world. Uh, we will have a huge advantage, not only economically, but in terms of national security, and I think you'll see that reflected in the standard of living of the average American. Um, and then I think just what we've seen with our national security posture is uh, we've got a problem on our hands with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, this country uh, embraced policies 
that really have empowered China for many, many decades. We were told that it'd make them more democratic, that it would be more markets for our manufacturing, even though China took most of our manufacturing, and that China would play by rules, but yet they manipulate their currency, they, they steal our technology, all that. So they're close to a peer competitive, uh, competitor of ours. Their economy may pass us uh, within the next 10 years based on the current course and trajectory. And the problem, I think that's a problem for us economically because if they're the dominant economic power, that is going to be something that's going to be felt in the household of every American family and it will affect our freedoms. But from a national security perspective, we've never had a competitor in our lifetimes that could match us economically. The Soviet Union's economy was basically a Potemkin village. Reagan understood this. That's why he spent them into bankruptcy. Even the Axis powers in World War II, the Allied powers had more economic might. So now you're in a situation where you're not only dealing with somebody that would have a peer and maybe even surpass us economically, but that our economy has been dependent upon their economy for things that are really, really important. You know, not just sneakers. Uh, we're getting pharmaceuticals. We're getting things that go into for our defense industrial base, things that you really need with for our national survival. So we've got to reevaluate a lot of what this country uh, has been doing. Uh, you know, we need to refocus everything that, that we're doing uh, about what's good for, for middle-class Americans. We're a country with an economy not the other way around. American people are not just cogs in the wheel of some global economic enterprise. You're American citizens, citizens of a republic. And the job of policymakers is to protect your freedom, protect your ability to make the most of your own life, but, but provide opportunity uh, so that you can get ahead again. And that's where we need to go. Uh, we, we're not going in that direction now. And when you see what's happening, it's really, really sad because so many of these problems have been self-inflicted. Well said. So you were about the first candidate to make the debate stage for next week in Milwaukee. And, and I guess the media would love to see uh, the former president there with the rest of you. It, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. I mean, how do you see the, the lay of the debate stage for next week? Well, we're prepared either way. Um, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And I think everyone should debate. Uh, if you qualify, uh, I think you owe it to the people to put out your vision, uh, to talk about your record, answer questions about, about your record and decisions that you may have made or not made. And if you're not willing to do that, then I think that, that people are not going to look kindly on that. So who knows what will end up happening. Uh, we'll be prepared either way. Uh, but we're, I'm excited about doing it because most of what you do uh, in this process is, is filtered through, uh, through media, uh, and seldom do you get the opportunity to speak directly to this many people. I mean, there'll probably be 10 million, maybe 50, who knows, maybe even more. So it gives you an opportunity to deliver, deliver your message uh, and then to answer questions that, uh, that are appropriate. I hope that uh, we will be focused on the future of the country rather than uh, some of the other static that's out there right now. Because a lot of the static, a lot of the things about looking backwards, uh, that is not going to help us secure this border. Uh, that is not going to help uh, these middle-class families who are struggling to even afford groceries. It's not going to help them uh, get better. Uh, it's not going to help us 
uh, be able to rein in these federal agencies that have abused their power. It's not going to help with any of that. Um, what will help with all of that uh, is if we're able to carry a message into the fall of 2024, holding Biden accountable for his failures and showing the American people how we're going to reverse this country's decline. And as the candidate, you know, I will be able to do that uh, free, I think, of, uh, of a lot of the other static that's out there and a lot of the, the inclination to look backwards. Uh, and there's nobody that wants us to be looking backwards more than the Democrats and the media. They would love to have us have to relitigate all this stuff from 2020, 2021, uh, because what does that do? That lets Biden sit in his basement again, not have to answer questions or face scrutiny. I mean, they're not going to face scrutiny. Can you imagine? So, um, you know, you have these horrible fires in Hawaii. And, uh, uh, you know, my wife and I actually, we did our honeymoon in Maui way back in the day. And so like, it's, a, it's a great, great area. Just utter devastation. And Biden, what is he doing? He ends up on the beach. And then he's asked about it and he says, oh, no comment. Now, look, if a Republican had tried to do that, what do you think the media would do? They would go crazy. In fact, they would blame the Republican for the fires happening in the first place. We all know that that's the truth. So... So the fact that he's able to kind of skate by, it just shows you how, how this stuff will end up being. So it's really up to us to ensure that the 2024 election is a referendum on what actually matters for this country's future. And I think what actually matters is, you know, Biden's policies have failed. We're going to prosecute that case. And then we're going to offer a positive vision uh, to get us out of the mess um, and to reverse the country's decline. If we do that, we will win. We will win the presidency and we will win the House and the Senate and we will have an opportunity to really change America for the better. I, I, I will confess and it's a level of vanity that I've reached the age now where I've got people running for president like yourself who are younger than me, only by a couple of years, but you also got kids younger than me and they've been on the campaign trail with you. And I, I think it's notable one, because what a great education for your kids in American civics, but also uh, you're, you're a military veteran. You got a, you've got a young family uh, to be able to see the world through those perspectives to shape American policy. Seems like it, it, it gives you a level of perspective that maybe not everyone on the trail might have. Well, first of all, you know, my kids, so they've done for the last two weeks, they've been on a bus tour through Iowa with us. So we've done, I've done totally, I've done 38 of the 99 counties. The kids, though, have been with us on at least half of those counties. So they're going around and, and they're going to like a county fair in a really rural part of Iowa. They're seeing, you know, going to pet some big cow. They're seeing, uh, <laughs> we were up in northern Iowa. There's a, there's a, a cheese curd place where my kids are eating cheese curds and ice cream because of the dairy and everything. We were out um, at, at one of the stops. And uh, before I brought my kids to Iowa, so I, I was a baseball player all the way through college, through my senior year of college, and it was, that was what I did, and that's what I always wanted my life to do as far as I could take it. And so I may have uh, shown my kids before our first trip to Iowa a baseball movie from the late 1980s that happened to involve <laughs> Iowa. 
And we were uh, getting ready to go on the bus again. And we had like 20 minutes to burn. So my son is five and he got really into, he's gotten really into baseball this season. So we bring his gloves and his bat on the road and we do. So I'm out there by, over by the cornfield playing catch with him. And, uh, and he goes to me, daddy, is this heaven? <laughs> I said, no, son, it's Iowa. <laughs> But those are just the things that you get to do when you're, when you're with them. And, and my wife and I, they, the kids love doing this. I mean, we wouldn't want to put it through it if they didn't like it. So they do like it. But for us, a lot of it's just being able to spend time with them. Because, uh, you know, we could be in Tallahassee spending time with them. Great. If we're somewhere else, you know, we want to do that. And so it's really been fun to be able to make that happen. Now, in terms of how I see the world, uh, it definitely impacts uh, how I do. I mean, the stuff we've done in education, you know, I would have done this anyways, I think, as a governor. But the fact that I've got a six, a five and a three year old, we just started school Wednesday, first grade, kindergarten and pre-K three are my kids um, in school now. So when you see things about like indoctrination in the curriculum, when we had the fight against Disney about should there be uh, sexualization of the curriculum in elementary school? Of course, I think I always would have said no to that, but having the kids, I'm like, you know, H-E double hockey sticks, no, we're not doing that. I don't, I want to have school be school. I don't want an agenda uh, shoved down their throat. We see different things in, in the, with cartoons where they're trying to do this. So we're, we're as parents sensitive. We understand what parents are going through. We understand it's difficult in an era of all these devices and everything. There's so many different distractions. There's so many things that take away from you know, your kid just growing up to, 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 be, to, be, to be good folks. And when I was growing up, we didn't have a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, you could turn on cartoons and it was just cartoons. You would go to school. I went to school, um, you know, in Florida. I never had any political that I can remember uh, when, when I was in school. And now it's just a lot different. So we definitely are sensitive to the, the rights of parents, the ability of parents to choose the best school. And we have universal school choice in Florida now that we just enacted my most recent legislative session. And we're, we're also sensitive about how, and look, a lot of the blowback we get from the media on the left in Florida is because uh, I am not like some of our, our other Republicans from the past, just content to like cut taxes, have a good business environment, and then let the left use rest of society as their personal little playpen. I don't let that happen in Florida. They are not going to just take over our schools and use our schools as an instrument to impose their agenda. We are not going to do that. So we fight on those grounds to ensure that the parents have a seat at the table, that there's curriculum transparency. And it's, it, it's sad that this is the case, but when we said parents have a right to know what curriculum is being used in their kid's school, the, the left opposed us on that. Why would you oppose the parent being involved as a teacher? If the parent cares about what the kid, their kids are doing, the kids are going to do better. It's harder to reach the kids where the parents aren't as involved. And the reason I think they don't want the parents involved is because the parents represent a roadblock for them to use the system to, to impose their agenda. And so our parents have blown the whistle on books that have been in fourth or fifth grade that have like hardcore pornography in them. How is that possibly appropriate? And the media on the left will say, if you remove a pornographic book from fifth grade classroom, that that means you're quote, banning books. 
Well, I can tell you in Florida, you as adults can get any book that you want anywhere. There's never been anything done. Uh, but adult material should not be shoehorned into an elementary school classroom. If you as a Floridian or American, you know, want to consume that material, keep it away from our kids. Go, go review Hunter Biden's laptop for all I care. Just don't bring it for our kids. And so we, we see it and we're... So we're sensitive to it, and we just want to make sure that parents are empowered and that, that we're doing right by, by the kids. Because if, if we don't get a handle on this education in this country, we're not going to be able, we're not going to, be able to, to, to be a strong America for, for very long. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So we've pushed back in Florida, not just K-12, but even higher education. You know, we're getting, uh, we get a lot of incoming for some of the stuff we've done there because we're basically saying the purpose of higher education uh, is not to impose ideological conformity. It's to do the pursuit of truth. It's to, pers it's to prepare uh, our students to be citizens of a republic. That's the classic mission of higher education, and yet it's kind of gone off the rails. So we've done things like now in Florida, all tenured professors must undergo review every five years and can be let go for poor performance. Uh, we also have, uh, we're, we're going to be instituting a core curriculum across our state universities that's going to focus on things that really, really matter. Uh, and we just had a, a college get rid of gender studies uh, from one of their offerings because it's like, okay, this is taxpayer dollars. Uh, we should focus on things that are going to be beneficial for the state of Florida and that are in the best interests of the students and taxpayers. So we're doing that. And, and the left and the media don't like that because they have viewed higher education as basically their purview uh, to do whatever they want. And, and those days are over in the state of Florida. You, you mentioned parental rights, and I, I, I still believe this is probably the sleeper issue of this campaign season. It, it, it's not even just bad policy. It, it, it is insane that suddenly parents are terrorists if they want schools to be open. Uh, parents shouldn't be able to, to come to school boards to explain what's in the elementary school. Parents can't be told their children are transitioning. We've got to hide it from the parents. Uh, California now looking at passing a law that would punish schools that did inform parents. How on earth did parents become the bad guy? Well, California is also considering uh, a bill that would say if you as a parent Say have a have a twelve year old son. The twelve year old son comes to you and says, uh, "Mommy, Daddy, I, I, I'm really a girl. I want to be a girl." If you say no, you could lose custody of your own kid. They are they are debating that, and I think you're going to see more more movement in that direction. So uh, this is insane. Uh, but what they're doing, they're basically saying that, and I don't think it's limited just the parents' rights context. I think this is also the battle we face in religious liberty context, is they have an orthodoxy on the left that they want to impose on society. Uh, it's, it, it's basically their religion. It's not a traditional uh, a faith in, in God, per se. It's a faith in, in, in a leftist ideology. And, and that is what, what they want to govern society. So you as a parent... Whatever your rights are, they think should yield if there's a conflict between them pursuing their agenda and you being a parent, just like I would say the same as being the case with religious liberty now. You know, we'll see a case go to the Supreme Court 
with like Coach Kennedy from Washington State. He was a football coach. He would pray at midfield after the football games, totally voluntary. You know, a lot of students wanted to do it, but he wasn't forcing him to do it. He lost his job because he was, he was praying as a public school, and he went to the Supreme Court. He won six to three, and people say, oh, you know, victory for religious liberty. The fact that that's even getting to the Supreme Court tells you that, that, that we're not strong on religious liberty because the founders would have laughed that that would have ever been a case, um, that you're going and doing that. But I think it's the same mindset that uh, your right to practice your faith, and not just with Christians, Orthodox Jews and others, uh, they think that it stops the minute that it impinges on their agenda. That's why you can have a case like a 303 creative at the U.S. Supreme Court where the three liberal justices dissent, uh, and they would have supported the compelled speech. Do you think for a minute, if there was conservative compelled speech, that those three justices, liberals, would have dissented? No way. They would have been on the other side of that. And so they're basically saying that religious freedom is less as a matter of God-given right, and it's more something that the elites are allowing you to do and are tolerating you doing it, but only up until the point that it conflicts with their agenda. And that's very dangerous for society. And if you think about it, the family and faith are the building blocks of society, and those are the two areas that they're really waging an assault against right now. I want to pivot uh, to the military because the number one issue when this crowd submitted questions was military readiness, preparedness, uh, the procurement process. Uh, with your background having been in the military, it seems to be that for all of the rah-rah this administration gives, we love the soldiers, their practices don't seem to be what they're preaching. All you got to look is at the recruiting numbers. We have the lowest recruiting since Vietnam when the draft was ended. And why is that the case? I think there's a couple reasons. I mean, one, I think the way they handed the COVID-19 vaxes in the military was a disgrace. Mm -hmm. They were forcing people to take a vax uh, for a virus that most people in good shape in the military were not at serious risk from, the uh, COVID. And then they were making people who already had COVID take it. And then they were making people take it even when they knew it didn't prevent infection to begin with. That did drive people out. It did prevent people from wanting to join. I know they've gotten rid of that. Congress forced it. But, but that was it. But I think the larger issue is the cultural change within the military. Uh, they are clearly uh, pursuing social experimentation, political agenda, woke ideology at the expense of, of the mission. And when that happens... Uh, how many people, I mean, you know, you're recruiting from ba basically the South and the Midwest is mostly where you're, where you're getting a lot of these people. Uh, that's not necessarily a military that people are going to be inspired to join at the levels we need. And I have veterans come up to me, and this is relatively recent that this is happening, saying they would not want their kids or grandkids to join today's military, given how it's become more political in nature. And that is really, really sad. But that's just the reality that we see with what's going on. So we did a rollout of a policy uh, to deal with this um, uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago in South Carolina. And basically, on day one as commander in chief, we're ripping out the social experimentation. We're ripping out the political agenda, ripping out the wokeness. We're going to restore the military to its proper function of putting the mission first. And when you join the military, you know, because I served um, during the Iraq years, so I deployed. I was uh, an officer with Navy JAG. I deployed uh, alongside Navy SEALs in Fallujah. And so you're in situations there that, and there's different people that have different roles, but it's the mission before all else. 
People have different backgrounds, different religious denominations, different ethnicity, different race. But when you put on that uniform, uh, you are saying that you are going to put the mission before or else, even, you know, potentially at the cost of your life. And if you don't do that, then people die. Uh, and people don't, we, we don't succeed in the mission. So, so that's just what you have to do. And I think that's what people expect the military is going to do. And they've gone other way. I, I look at like becoming a four star admiral or general right now. You know, George Patton would not even be a one star general, probably with the way <laughs> things are. It's just that that's not what's rewarded. You're rewarded by. Are you talking about pronouns? Are you talking about all those things? That's how you advance, uh, given the current climate, and, that, and that's wrong. So I think that's a huge problem. That is a problem, though, that's pretty easy to fix because the president, as commander-in-chief,'s got a lot of authority to ensure good order and discipline, and so you could do that. I think another problem that we see is uh, you know, our defense industrial base um, is really, really hurting right now. I mean, we're running out of ammunition. Uh, our stockpiles are low. Uh, this has evolved over many decades, but you just have a handful of companies that, that are relied on it. That's not healthy. So I really would like to reinvigorate our defense industrial base. I want to have more companies, smaller companies being involved. I don't think it should just be a, de a defense industrial complex with a handful of, of big placeholders or, or stakeholders. Uh, but we've got to do more here in the United States because uh, our national security uh, really is at risk. And we've let this go for a long time. And we're going to end up paying the consequences if we don't reverse it very soon. I've been asking everybody on stage this morning, that it is, and I admit out of the gate, it's a very esoteric question, but there are a lot of things we know we know, going to, to Don Rumsfeld's old quote, there are a lot of things we know we don't know, but there seems to be a growing array of things we don't even know we don't know that are festering around the world and even here at home. Uh, and So I can't ask you about the things we don't even know we know, but if you were, as governor now, or if you were president, where do you think the government needs to start focusing a spotlight in the shadows to try to get an assessment of what might be happening out there we've got no idea of? Well, I, I think that um, with, with China, uh, I think that there's, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that our government is not uh, well in tune at what they're doing. Uh, you know, I think that they've been very, very effective um, at getting involved in all kinds of crevices uh, in the economy and society. One of the differences I look between the Soviet Union when the Cold War and now is um, China, they have Confucius Institutes at universities, not in Florida. We banned it, but they will go, they will spread propaganda. There's police stations that they set up in our own country to police the Chinese nationals who were there. Um, and there's just, I think there's so many other things that they're doing uh, that we're not even attuned to. And I think we need to do a better job than that. I, I think one of the things that we don't know where it's going per se, but we know it's going to be an influence is artificial intelligence. Uh, artificial intelligence, I mean, at the end of the day, it's basically just consuming big data sets and being able to churn out, um, uh, have the computers churn out answers. But what goes into those data sets? The, the main uh, artificial intelligence companies, the three main incumbents, it's, it's kind of a woke data set, some people have pointed out. Um, and so what's, what, whatever's in is what's going to end up churning out. Uh, they want to get some regulation to protect them from competition. I actually think you probably you need the competition, but we there's got to be limits to what we're going to allow artificial intelligence to do. I mean, there's a lot of perils 
uh, with something like artificial intelligence. I don't think we could just put our head in the sand and not deal with it because China is going to be using it from a defense perspective. And if they're able to go and we're not keeping up with that, that's going to put our, our country at a competitive disadvantage. Uh, but how that unfolds, people say, what, what would your policy be? And I say, look, I don't think you can, you can articulate what the policy will be on January 20th, 2025, right now, because in the next year and a half, there's going to be a lot that transpires with respect to this. So here are the principles, and one of the principles is, and we're not going to have human beings uh, displaced and overtaken by computers. That's not going to be good, good for society. But how that develops, uh, I think, is a, is a big unknown. I think there's going to be a lot of things that are happening very rapidly. And we've just got to be very nimble and we've got to make sure that you know, China's not going to be able to use it to, to have a competitive advantage against us or use against us, but that we're also protecting the health of our society and we're not going to end up in some brave new world. The border, you, you, you've exposed the lunacy of the policies, uh, the, the, the people to Martha's Vineyard and the like, and now suddenly you have these mayors of democratic cities that, I mean, forgive me, the, the former president's nickname he likes to use for you, the, these sanctuary cities, I think they want to be sanctimonious cities. They, 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 they practiced, we're going to let these people come and stay. And so now that they're there, uh, in large part because of uh, Governor Abbott and you, they're like, oh my gosh, we can't handle these people, further highlighting the absurdity. I mean, how do you, forget just for a minute running for president and maybe being president, as a governor, and you're not in a border state, can you just explain to people how the problem still affects your state? Oh, no, de it definitely does. So, well, first of all, we're a maritime state, and so they will run boats from Haiti and Cuba and these places with illegal aliens, and the Coast Guard's in charge of that, but the Coast Guard doesn't have enough assets to stop all the boats. And so we were in a situation, they were running a lot of boats, a lot of them were getting through, the Coast Guard was even dropping people off in, um, in Florida. And so I surge maritime assets from the state. So we will interdict the boat. We'll give the, the, the illegals to the Coast Guard, and then they bring them back to Haiti or whatever. Once they saw that they were not going to be able to get through, the number of boats declined dramatically. Because why would you want to get on a boat that's not very good, go over really treacherous water just to end up where you, where you started from? And so that was a deterrent because they knew that we were going to stop, interdict, and then return. They don't do that at the border, obviously. They give you a sheet of paper saying, come back in three years, enjoy your stay in America, come back for a court date in like two or three years. That doesn't work. But we face it, and, and we've actually been successful working with the Coast Guard. Uh, and look, if I were president, I'd have more Coast Guard cutters there, and we'd be able to do more with the, with the ships. Um, we also have people that are brought in. Uh, Florida has big events. We've had to do a lot uh, to combat human trafficking. So I just signed a, another major piece of legislation uh, to turn up the heat on the, on the human traffickers. But a lot of this is emanating from the southern border. Uh, I uh, convene a statewide investigatory grand jury that's been looking at illegal immigration for about a year now. And what they found was you will have foreign national mothers with like four kids and she will rent out her kids to military age males because if you come across the border illegally with a minor, you know, you're able to stay. It's a better chance of you being able to stay the way you want to stay. 
But, you know, these minors are being treated very, very horribly, and there's a lot of abuse that's going on. So we've had that testimony in Florida where, where some of that was going on. And then, of course, you know, we have criminal aliens end up, end up all over the country. And then the fentanyl ends up all over the country. Uh, don't act like this is just a border problem. There are people overdosing from fentanyl in every, every corner of this country. I was down at the border. I met, um, we did a town hall before we did our border announcement, and I met some of the angel moms. And I met an angel mom down there whose son took one Percocet that just happened to be laced with fentanyl and died. And that is happening in communities all across this country to the tune we have tens of thousands of people that are dying from fentanyl overdose. And that's all being brought in uh, because the border's not secure and the cartels have more control over our border so than we do. And, and that's, that's just a lack of will. Uh, it's a lack of interest by our ruling class. When the illegals show up to Manhattan or Martha's Vineyard, they're showing up in neighborhoods where this is elite liberal elites who have talked about open borders. They've talked about they should be sanctuary. But this has all just been a virtue signaling because they never had to deal with the consequences of the policies. Then when they have to, they don't like it. One of the things that, that I've said I'll do as president, which yes, we'll declare it a national emergency. I'm gonna send military down there. We'll build a wall. We'll, we'll do remain in Mexico, stop the invasion. We'll do all that. But when you have cartels operating the way they are, they're operating as akin to foreign terrorist organizations because they're killing our people. They're poisoning our people. So we are going to authorize the use of deadly force against the cartels. If you have somebody coming in with the fentanyl on their in the backpack, they even break through the border wall where there is wall. Uh, if they're doing that, uh, that's the last thing they, they're going to be able to do because we're going to leave them stone cold dead at the border. We're not putting up with it anymore. So, uh, speaking of the, the other, other war, you, you got some, some heat for how you phrased it. I chuckled it because I always talk about gutting it. Um, we have a mutual friend in Chip Roy who virulently hates the federal bureaucracy and does, doesn't want to, doesn't want to tweak it, wants to get rid of it, wants to gut it. And it genuinely does seem like, uh, whether it's the prior administration or this one, the bureaucracy just keeps growing and, and more and more undermines the will of the executive that it's supposed to work for. So how do you actually, if you get in there, wind down the bureaucracy, get it right again? So you, there's a couple things. You have size and then you have scope of, of power that they're exercising. So on the size, Florida, uh, we have the lowest or second lowest uh, state uh, workers per capita in the entire United States in terms of the size of our state government. Um, the amount that it costs for all our state employees per capita is like half of what it would be in like a New York or California and all that. But yet when the New Yorkers move to Florida, they say they our services are better. Our roads are nicer and we are performing better in, in, in education now. So don't tell me all this bureaucracy is necessary. 
they've increased the agencies by 50% since 2019. A lot of that was COVID and they locked it in at higher levels. Are you trying to tell me if we went back to just the size of government we had five years ago that somehow that the, the, this would be uh, bad for the country? Are you 50% better off as an American? Of course not. So there's so much of this that is grossly excessive. So we're going to do things like, um, you know, uh, reduction through attrition. Uh, you know, we're going to empower the secretaries, um, you know, to be to be more um, um, uh, aggressive um, at, at laying people off. We're going to issue a directive. All D.C. footprint for the agencies needs to be reduced by 50 percent because you've had so much of these people consolidated in D.C. and all that. So that's just the government is too big and we need to reduce its size. But then the, what's more ominous than even that is the scope of power that they're exercising because it's not consistent with the way our Constitution was designed. The Founding Fathers designed three branches of government, executive, legislative, judicial. They did not design a fourth branch of government, an administrative state that is now grown to where it's exercising authority over us with impunity, regardless in many instances of the outcomes of elections, uh, and they're not held constitutionally accountable. So that creates bad things for society in terms of the policies that they're pursuing, you know, how they want to restrict energy, what they want to do for what kind of cars you can drive. Heck, even what gas stoves is now something they're talking. By the way, in Florida, we made gas stoves tax free. So we're going out in a little bit different direction than, than the feds, but that's fine. So. So you have that. And the question is, like, who governs? Do we govern ourselves? If we govern ourselves, that means that the things that affect your lives are voted on by your elected representatives so that if you don't like what they're doing, you can show them the door. When it's done by nameless, faceless bureaucrats who will never stand for election, uh, they're exercising power without proper accountability of we, the American people. So we need to return the government back to we, the people. And so you look at things like weaponization of the DOJ, FBI, IRS. Um, the founders would have predicted that this would happen. When you have power accumulate and it's not being held constitutionally accountable, human nature being what it is, they are going to abuse their power. This is not something that, that they would have thought uh, was unforeseen. And so you gotta go in on those agencies, Republican and Democrat, now the Democrat presidents can accept it because they're gonna do their bidding, but all Republican presidents in our recent lifetime have accepted the canard that the DOJ and FBI are quote, independent. And independent means they're not accountable to anybody. And these are the people that have guns and can put you in jail. Um, those are not the people that you want to not have accountability. They are not independent agencies. They are executive branch agencies that report to the elected president of the United States. And the president has got to hold those agencies accountable for their conduct and hold them accountable for abusing their power. For example, uh, if you have a situation where parents are being surveilled by the FBI going to school board meetings, you fire those people who did that. When you have memos. When you have memos circulating that are identifying traditional Catholics as potential terrorists, you fire the people that were involved with doing that, when you have, 
when you have uh, the FBI working with big tech to censor truthful information, and particularly in the midst of election like they did with Hunter Biden, uh, you fire the people that did that, but you say you cannot, in Florida, we actually prohibit our, our employees from working with big tech to censor information. You gotta take action. And then of course you have some of these health bureaucracies that were run amok during COVID. CDC, FDA, uh, NIH, all of those uh, need to be brought to heel. But you as the elected president need to be willing to wield your Article II power uh, to the fullest extent to bring this bureaucracy in line with the constitutional design. And so if you have somebody um, who's exercising power that was that's not um, accountable, like a Dr. Fauci, the way you deal with a Fauci, you don't elevate Fauci, you don't coddle Fauci, you bring him in, you sit him down, and you say, Anthony, you're fired. That's what you do. And oh, by the way, and, I, and I've actually seen some of this nonsense firsthand. So when I was a congressman, uh, I was at the congressional baseball field when a deranged left-wing shooter tried to assassinate Republican members of the congressional baseball team. Uh, I had been pretty close to where he was shooting five minutes before he started shooting. Uh, I was walking to the car with a, a colleague of mine from South Carolina, Jeff Duncan. He asked Jeff, are those Republicans on the baseball field or Democrats? Jeff said it's Republicans. We got in the car. We drove back to Capitol Hill. He walked to the van, got a rifle, and just started shooting people. We saw his social media within an hour of the shooting. We saw how deranged he was. We reported to the FBI, both Jeff and I, that he wanted to know what the political party was of the, of the, the, the shooters, of the, of the baseball players. The FBI categorized that not as an act of potential political assassination or political violence, they categorized it as suicide by cop. As if this was just a guy that wanted, first of all, we normally wouldn't have had anybody that was armed there. The only reason there were armed officers is because Steve Scalise had a security detail because he was a member of the congressional leadership. If he hadn't gone to practice, there would have been no other cops. And so they said it was suicide by cop. And I think it took them three or four years to finally acknowledge that no, this was a deranged left-wing gunman uh, who, who opened fire on these baseball players because he knew they were Republican members of Congress. And can you imagine if you had had Democrat baseball players and you had um, a, a, a shooter who ever went within a, a hundred yards of a Trump rally they would have been all over that. That would have been DEFCON, DEFCON 4 for the media and everything. But for this, they wanted to act like it didn't happen. So when I saw that, I was like, how could you possibly do it? But that's the culture uh, that's developed. So we've got a lot of work to do on all this stuff. At the end of the day, the way I view it is simple. This bureaucracy for far too long has imposed its will on we the people. It's about time we, the people, impose our will on it for a change. I, I got to ask you one last question, and this is for those of us who live in the Southeast. Uh, it's a small bone to pick with you. Since COVID, 
there has been this alarming rise on the interstates of Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, of slow pokes in the left lane with Florida tags. And I'm wondering, are those the Yankees who moved down during COVID and headed home and they just haven't figured out how to drive yet? Because it, it's a, it happened to me on the way up here yesterday. Uh, I'll, I will tell you this. I mean, and since I've been governor, uh, our traffic patterns and behavior has changed because the population has changed. I, I was born and raised in Florida. I never remember ever seeing a California license plate in my whole life. I become governor, particularly after COVID, we start seeing California license plates in Florida. My supporters were not happy to see that because <laughs> they just assume these people are not going to vote the right way. As it turns out, you know, most of these folks are disaffected uh, people who are, you know, center right and just had enough and they wanted to come to Florida. But we have brought people in from states that look, there is a rhythm to life before COVID and before I was governor, you know, you work in like the Northeast, you retire to Boca Raton, whatever that that's, that was like normal. Right. But when you have people coming from Washington state, when I have a pastor that, that couldn't get, couldn't operate his church because the government shut it down and wouldn't let him preach that he takes his church and moves it to Florida and sets up a church in Florida. When I have families from Oregon coming because they couldn't get their kids in school. Uh, it was definitely a migration uh, like, we've, like we've never seen before. Uh, and, and so we pretty much have a mix, I think, of Northeast drivers, Southern drivers, <laughs> West Coast drivers. And then I would say like Miami is just like a, a, a world unto itself when you start talking about how people are driving down there. Governor Ron DeSantis, thank you for hanging out with us here. Thank you for making the trip. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. I really appreciate it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.